Hey everyone, I am Dr. Aaron Wheeler. And I'm Dr. Matt Cook. And this is Missio Pop, a podcast on popular missiology where two overeducated white dudes talk about all things in the culture of missions and God's hope for the world. This first season, we're focusing on the task of contextualization, the way in which culture shapes and forms the way we share God's truth. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to Missio Pop, episode seven. This is the second part of our two-parter, talking about the dangers of contextualization. And today we're looking at syncretism. Yeah, and it's been a minute since we've done this. You've been, like, globetrotting some. Yeah, yeah for uh, for those of you who care about things that you probably don't care about, um, it has been a few weeks since we recorded our last episode because we, uh, you know, ended our semesters and did the things we do. And yeah, I actually uh, just got back Sunday night from uh, Uganda, went over there with an organization, of course, that's near and dear to our hearts, Kindred Exchange, uh, with their global cohort program. Um, Just an absolutely amazing experience. The things that, uh, I know this is a little weird because I am on staff there, but I absolutely can't take credit for any of this because this isn't the part of the organization that I work with and oversee. Uh, but the global cohorts that uh, Dr. Pinkston and Abby put together have been running over the last year. Incredible work. Uh, I got to be there to see the second half of what they've done there and, and do the closing graduation ceremonies and be a part of that. And just just amazing things in this concept of doing short-term trips differently, of coming in with a humble heart of looking to exchange and reciprocity and the building of networks of relationships and, and the depths. I, I would put it this way. I would say I, I would never have guessed that in just one year, those kind of things could have happened. The depth of relationships and the impact that's happening locally was astounding to me. It was a great experience. Check it out. Kindred Exchange, Global Cohorts, learn about what's going on there. want to put a quick plug in for that and say that I am still kind of processing and thinking through and, and going through in my brain what I just saw and what I experienced there. Just an incredible work. Uh, shout yeah, out to everybody who's with that. You still have a little bit of jet lag, right? I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, a, well, that's a thing. I've tried uh, to convince you and I'm sure all of our listeners would agree that if you drank coffee, it'd make it a little bit easier. But here you are drinking your water. I had had a had a cup of coffee earlier this morning. I'm not gonna lie, uh, it wasn't my it wasn't the highlight of my day. I'll put it there. Uh, I you know sometimes it's just necessary. I don't know how else to get it through. Coffee is the healthiest form of caffeine consumption. I'm just glad you're coming closer and closer to Jesus as we get to know each other better. Yeah, a Church of Christ guy would put it in those terms, but um, you <laughs> I'm know, judge you over it. <laughs> Uh, another programming note uh, before we get into our content today, I got a, an email from Spotify that we have crossed 500 plays through episode five of this podcast. I think our 10 family members just each listen to it 50 times a piece. Yeah, that's that's what I figured. My mom and dad are just have it on continual play going over and over again, 24 hours a day. That's the only way to make sense of any of this for me. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's not just maybe our immediate families listening to this. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, yeah. We have no idea who you are out there who actually wants to hear uh, two overeducated white dudes talk about popular missiology, but we're glad it's happening. That is that is an honor and a, and a privilege, and we're glad that that's there. I did want to throw out um, 
if you want to respond to us, we probably should have done this like back in episode one. <laughs> <laughs> but no, never mind. No, if, we don't. if there's any kind of question or feedback or any kind of engagement that you are looking for, Please I'll just put Aaron Wheeler. Yeah, That's I'll put my my Aaron information Wheeler. out there. It is uh, my email is Aaron at kindredexchange.co. So if there's any question or response or way that you would like to engage with us in our you know last two episodes, because that's all we have at this point, uh, feel free to do it again at Aaron at kindredexchange.co. We would love to hear from you. So Matt, it has been a few weeks since anything crazy change happened in your life. I don't guess my kids have been at uh, church camp all week. So that's been, hey. that's been fun. Um, they've been there and I've not been there um that's it yeah just got to wrap the semester up that's always exciting it is. uh yeah so it's good camped a little bit camped off a little bit yeah you camp you like yeah, a, sleep outside on purpose no 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 um, oh, okay i guess okay. some people would call it glamping it's a camper and it's in a at a campsite yeah we camp is there a television go. involved there is a television in the camper though we only turn it on if it's raining or if it's like really hot so it gets turned on most most days a little bit. The, to me, that's the line of glamping is if a television is involved. There is a television involved. So if you do, then if you could, you know, stream Netflix for your kids. You can't do that at state okay. parks. That's the thing. You just got to pick up whatever. If you bring the switch, though, that can be, that's kind okay. of fun. Yeah, if you're anyway. playing Tears of the Kingdom and your camping trip is tough, <laughs> it's, it's glamping. That, yeah, I have not traveled is. the world, though. No jet lag. Um, kept it local. Okay, great. Well, now that everyone has listened to us catch up, we're going to get into our content today. We are talking about syncretism. If you remember our metaphor from earlier, the bridge of contextualization, where you're trying to go on this middle path, where you're, you're relevant, you're helpful, you're speaking truth in ways that people can understand, there are two dangers kind of on that bridge that you can fall off either side. You can uh, go too far to the right or too far to the left. That is not a political term. I don't even know what direction those would be. This is a metaphor. Don't quote me. So uh, to fall on one end, which we talked about last episode, was irrelevancy or traditionalism where you're not contextualizing enough or at all, because uh, usually you don't see the reason or the point for it. Today, we are talking about syncretism, which is the other way where you contextualize too much. Matt, how would you describe this thing we're talking about? Probably the most helpful definition that I've seen comes from Van Reenen. And I don't, I hate like technical definitions especially on a podcast, but here we go anyway. This is good. Um, he says it's the blending of Christian beliefs and practices with those of the dominant culture. So think like you're in a culture and you're blending Christian beliefs and practices with the beliefs and practices of that culture so that that's not a problem. The problem is when Christianity loses its distinctiveness and speaks with a voice reflective of its culture rather than reflective of, of Jesus. Um, so when... I guess the simplest way to say it is when um, Christianity gets drowned out by culture yeah. or overpowered by culture um, in an effort to be relevant in that culture. So yeah, it's yeah. a tough, it's tough to figure like relevance is that's what we're talking about with contextualization, but sometimes we try too hard and we be, try to be too relevant. And then the gospel loses its gospel centeredness. Yeah. That, that core of the gospel both and we're not just talking about evangelism we're talking about discipleship as well but the core of what makes the gospel the gospel what makes truth truth has in the process of contextualization been lost usually because we're just 
trying too hard in that tension between truth and culture, culture winning the day. And I think it's helpful. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today that there's almost like three forms of syncretism, almost three ways that it happens. The one that's the big boogeyman of contextualization, you know, what, what makes people hesitant about contextualizing at all is kind of your more obvious overt syncretism. So that's where what you're preaching is no longer the gospel, that something has been lost on the way. We'll get to some examples here in a minute. Um, kind of your most obvious overt syncretism that's real easy to see pretty obvious to any kind of outsider and is aerobic problem. But I would say there's also a, a subtle syncretism that happens where it's not that, you know, your gospel is no longer the gospel, but parts of the culture have kind of seeped their way into the truth to where you're subtly following the culture in ways that you probably don't even recognize or see are a problem, but actually are hurtful and actually are taking people away from the cause of Christ and long-term have devastating consequences but are just such a small shift that in the moment we don't even recognize that they're a problem. So I call that subtle syncretism, which is, I think in some ways, the greater danger than the more overt syncretism that we instinctually know to avoid. Right. And with both of these, both traditionalism and syncretism, nobody sets out to do this intentionally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so that's why it's easy to to slip into, it's not because we're doing some crazy thing that it's obvious to the whole world. Oh, look, they've, They've lost the gospel here. It's just allowing culture. That's a good use. The good word seep. The culture seeps in and pretty soon like this thing or characteristic of our church or our movement looks more like culture than it does um, what scripture or, or what the early Christians look like or what Jesus followers look like. Yeah. I think what happens in those situations are there's, you know, we've talked a lot about values and that's the heart of culture. That's the engine that drives culture. I think when that happens is there's a value of the culture that either isn't a value of Christ or even sometimes against the values of Christ, but it's so important to the culture that it becomes a big deal. And again, seeps its way in and it, you know, that inevitable pressure over time that because the value because the culture values us so much we automatically assume it's a good thing and then we try to integrate good things into our walk with christ and that has happened the third um form of syncretism that we don't really need to spend a lot of time is i would call harmless syncretism where little things have occurred that you know sure if we were doing this in another culture we wouldn't bring these in but really they're not affecting anything they're just kind of harmless syncretism that's weird and funny and you can point at and look at but you know, let's all come down and not make a big deal. Yeah. And perhaps, ooh, that brings up an interesting thought, though. Perhaps it's the people who tend towards traditionalism who lose their minds over the harmless syncretism. Yeah. Like things that really don't matter. Um, really, I'll give an example. I'll okay. save my example. I've got a good example of it. No, go ahead and bring it up now. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. So there are, I think sometimes you see some of the syncretism in in Christian art, depending mm. on the culture that you're in. Um, so in Latin America, you've got the conquistadors coming in, in the late 1400s. Um, you got the Incan empire on the Western side. So I'm getting really nerdy here on the Western side of Latin America. Um, and so they force conversion, though they say it's not forced conversion, it's forced conversion. Yeah. And so naturally you've got this whole group of people who are classified as Christian, but they've held on to most of their beliefs. And so you've got this mix of Christianity and indigenous belief that still is prevalent today. And so you've got all this artwork from the past three or 400 years hanging up in big cathedrals that show some of this. My favorite one that's a great example of harmless syncretism is there's this in this big cathedral in Cusco, Peru. 
there's a painting of the last supper i hmm. think it's from the early 1700s it's really cool um except right in the middle of the table of jesus and the apostles is a cooey which is the traditional one of the most famous traditional dishes of the andes mountains um it's a it's a guinea pig so <laughs> what you've done is you've just somehow you've replaced the passover meal with a guinea pig yeah directly from andean culture and it's i mean i don't think i say it's harmless. i think it's harmless i suppose somebody if you take it too far could could it could create some problems but who does that who puts a guinea pig in the middle right. of the last supper that's a harmless syncretism yeah, yeah and those things happen they're, they're little things and if we're not careful we can we can lose our minds over them yeah. um but i think yeah i think there is a sense in where our people who lean more towards the traditionalism the irrelevancy will latch on to those harmless syncretisms as examples of why yeah. we shouldn't do this at all and why this is a big problem and we have to have distinctions that again i think of the three kinds we've talked about the overt the subtle and the harmless that the subtle is the most dangerous because it's the one that slides in between the two the the overt obvious syncretism we know to avoid we have instincts on that this the harmless ones we like to make case studies of and, and lose our minds over but it's the subtle ones that really are the problem and we will get into some examples of that subtle syncretism and where we've seen it absolutely so, so tell me, where did you first like experience this? Because isn't yeah. it funny? And I think this is one of the reasons that this podcast may be helpful to some people. Like I studied this term in grad school before we went to the mission field, but it's like before you go and see it in concrete ways, I, get, I don't know if I wasn't paying attention because like I remember being on the field and like the word syncretism never came to mind. Yeah. And I'm going to give you some examples in, in a little bit of how I saw syncretism, but like when I was on the field, I don't think I even realized it because until you're in the middle of it or have already experienced it, it's hard to really grasp this. Um, anyway, so I guess I would have, I wish I would have paid more attention in grad school and thought, okay, I've just read um, Hebert and he's talked about syncretism. I'm going to actually experience this. I need to be ready for it. But instead it was like, okay, I got to pass this test. I want to get this degree. Um Anyway, so I think that's why like a topic like this, so it's a big word and some people are like, nah, maybe this is something you can identify later on. Um, for me, I just, it was after I got, came off the field and started having to do doctoral work. It's like, and teach classes. It's like, oh, this is, this is real. And I can think of all the ways that I remember seeing it. So all that to say, how did you like first experience? Well, I this? would, I would first take a little bit of a bigger picture here and say that if your entire experience as a follower of Jesus has been monocultural, I don't know that you can identify syncretism because you have nothing to compare it to. You have nothing to contrast it with that. If your experience of following Jesus has always been in one culture, in one experience, in one way, how would you even know what's syncretistic and not? Um, and so I think there is in both of our experiences, it's our time overseas. It's our time cross-culturally where we began to see these things because now we can compare and contrast. Now we have something to, um, compare it to. And I think that's part of, you know, going back again to that subtle syncretism that we, the culture seeps in and the culture, you know, leaks in over time because this is the only culture we've ever known. And this is the only experience of following Jesus we've ever had, but to go back, yeah, my first experience uh, was 2006-ish, somewhere in that range, where um, I was studying the history of mission work in China and came across 
that the Christian experience in China goes way back earlier than we think. We usually talk about the Protestants and their work, but all the way back to 635 AD, you have these guys called the Nestorians who are uh, kind of an undersung group in the, the mission's history. They were Persian Christians who uh, didn't quite get on board with some of the core theology of uh, what we would consider core Christianity, specifically the humanity of Christ was an issue that they got hung up on. And, but they were powerful missionaries, especially going East. And so they arrived in China in 635. And there's this amazing artifact that is still in China today. If you go to Xi'an, China, to the uh, Forest of Steels Museum, it's not steel as in like from Pittsburgh, but steel as in uh, really kind of looks like a, um, well, it's just a big piece of marble. And on, there's hundreds and thousands of these that record history. And they all got buried at one point and found not too long ago. And among those, they found this, what they call the Nestorian tablet or the Xi'an steel, which is a recording of Christian doctrine by these Nestorians trying to promote the gospel. And so they talk about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's a fascinating case study in contextualization because I think most of it is pretty darn good contextualization. They're walking into a culture that is dominated by Buddhism, by Taoism, by Confucianism, and they're trying to explain the gospel that would make sense to those people in those places. And I think for the most part, they do a darn good job at accomplishing that. But the Nestorians, one of the great, you know, in missions history, one of the great critiques of them is that they did fall into syncretism that in their task of, of explaining the gospel to new cultures that they went too far. And so there's a section specifically in this tablet where, again, in this culture dominated by Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, they're trying to explain what Jesus did. In this section right here, he says, uh, Jesus established the new religion of the silent operation of the pure spirit of the triune. He rendered virtue subservient to direct faith. He fixed the extent of the eight boundaries, thus completing the truth and freeing it from the dross. He opened the gate of the three constant principles, introducing life and destroying death. He suspended the bright sun to invade the chambers of darkness and the falsehoods of the devil were thereupon defeated. And I think for most people, they read that and they go, what did you just say? Like, what? that makes zero sense. You were talking about the eight boundaries and the three constant principles. And um, those are all teachings of Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism kind of interwoven and layered in together there and so how much of that is good contextualization in that one of the things that they're doing here is they're showing how christianity answers the problems that other religions have taught other religions saying here's the problem with the world and they're saying well actually christianity is the answer to that problem that your religion gave uh, part of that is good contextualization i think that's what paul was doing on mars hill i think he was taking the religions of the day and saying here's the problems that you've stated and here's the answer that Jesus has for them. There's a reason why your faith isn't giving the answers and why Jesus can't. And some of that's good, but others of it, it's just, um, it's, it's for us unintelligible. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Uh, I'm not saying that this tablet is an example of syncretism. I'm saying we can kind of see some seeds though, that possibly in the coming time uh, would be falling into that syncretism that they were largely accused of. Well, you bring up an interesting I guess one of the major tensions when it comes to syncretism is how do you how do you share the gospel with practitioners of other world religions? Mm. Um, what how do you build bridges between Christianity and Islam or Christianity and Buddhism? And that's where there's been a ton of debate and a ton of like 
argument and scholars going back and forth at each other. And it all comes back to like, we want to contextualize well and how far can we go before it becomes syncretism? And ultimately this, we've said this all along through this podcast, like we need to have grace for one another because none of us are going to get this right. Um, this is hard, hard work. And like finding the balance is so hard uh, for me. Like I said, I guess the first time I really saw this would be in, in Peru. And again, in a painting, it's one of the places that I saw it most clearly. Um, so the Incan in, the Incans worshiped mountains um, and so in a Christian painting from the time of the conquistadors, um, there's a picture and it's got like the Holy Trinity's in the sky. You got some, I don't know, some bishops and stuff at the bottom. And then there's this mountain and in the mountain is, is Mary, like oh. Mary's face is in the mountain and her like hands are coming out of the mountain. And so you've seen what they've done. They've said, okay, okay. Natives of the Andes mountain, we want you to worship we want you to worship Mary. So let's just put her in the mountain because you already worship the mountain. Hmm. So now you can worship the mountain. And, and it's if to say, okay, are you going to like, they're just going to stop worshiping the mountain. You're going to start w- worshiping Mary because you put Mary in the mountain. Yeah. Well, no, they're going to probably adopt both. Now we're going to worship right. the mountain and Mary right. and see this mixture between the two. Um, and you just see how that one's like clearly problematic. Um, I need to text that to you because it's a, it's a great or a terrible example of ways that we sometimes do this. In fact, I'm texting it to you right now because it's it's a fun one. Yeah, um, I don't doubt that there's a fascinating dissertation out there if it hasn't already be done, been done of uh, syncretism in Christian art. That would be that would be some crazy things that somebody needs to do, not me. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> throwing that out there for anybody who's looking for a dissertation topic, that would be a fun one. I'd like to be on that committee. Syncretism in Christian art. That's a good one. Yeah. We can talk about the chosen and the shack and oh, <laughs> and all those kind of things, uh, let alone Rembrandt and Michelangelo. But um, as we look at syncretism and what it is, I think there's a little bit of that idea of you know it when you see it. We can give definitions all day. We can talk in generalities, but syncretism is one of those things we experience i think more than anything else and so talking through some examples uh ways that it has happened i think is helpful and instructive as we as we get into this topic so let's shift a little bit to we just gave a couple examples of kind of our first step into this but some of the more um like i talked in the beginning the the overt examples of syncretism especially when we're looking at an american context uh american christianity which is something that I'm assuming most of our readers have in com- our readers, <laughs> most of our listeners have in common at some level, is an experience with American Christianity. If we look at what is the most obvious example of syncretism in America, I think we would agree that we'd start with the health and wealth gospel or the the prosperity gospel. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. It's the most obvious one, and most it's a great example because I'm assuming all of our listeners can identify with some way that they've experienced that or seen that. Yeah. So the health and wealth gospel, if you're not familiar with the term or if you just heard it thrown around, it's basic synopsis goes at a doctrinal level where Jesus will reward your faith with increased health and wealth. That that is kind of the exchange that happens here is you show faith, you demonstrate faith, you live out faith, and Jesus will reward you for that faith with health and wealth. Uh, In some circles, 
because there's you know a wide spectrum of of doctrines and beliefs and practices within this it actually goes so far as to say that part of what you receive in your salvation is not just the forgiveness of your sins but also the promise of health and wealth in this life day now so it's actually a salvation issue which can create a whole lot of problems how far you want to take that and so where this really gets ugly is its connection with finances because you can kind of follow the bouncing ball of logic here if faith is what will give you health and wealth then the way to make sure you're going to get health and wealth is to demonstrate your faith is to do actions of faith and what better action of faith is there than for me as the preacher or the spiritual leader to give money to me um, to show that financial sacrifice that's that's real real faith right there and so uh, if you write me a check or if you send me something in the mail that's the great demonstration of your faith and you will be rewarded with health and wealth from that um, so there's a lot that goes along with that yeah so how like what was going on there how is that so if if syncretism is like over contextualization yeah what was going on where people were churches, preachers, leaders were trying to contextualize and it just went too far. It's a fascinating history that we do not have time to delve too deep in. So a real brief summary is we're looking at post-World War II America, a, a time of, of material gain that America had not experienced before. It, one of the fascinating parts of American history is how much we benefited from w both world wars. We had, you know, the Great Depression between the two, but the way that, you know, as the rest of the world was suffering from horror and death we were kind of isolated here just producing goods and financially benefiting and so in the boom post-world war ii is where this became a, a thing uh mainly through revivals that's where it began uh but really its establishment and where it became kind of what it is today was the great 1980s televangelism world where you know through the the increase in technology we could reach people everywhere across the country real quickly and you put up your address and send a check to this thing and we'll you know you'll see these promises and benefits of health and wealth come to you immediately um that's where it really became what it was through this 80s televangelism and you can see some of these major parts of our culture seeping its way into these christian groups materialism being one of them so here's materialism like seeping its way into christian teaching and christian groups are obsession with celebrities oh, yeah. so you like get this cele these celebrity pastors like our obsession with celebrity that seeps into the church and then i think just this fits in any culture but like hunger for power so you bring all three of those forces together and all of them start seeping into christian circles now you've got this full-blown health and wealth gospel what's fascinating to me is is that this this gospel exists across the globe oh yeah it's, it's everywhere. It's in Latin America. I'm overseeing a master's thesis right now about it by an African evangelist. Like he lives there, he's doing everything online. And so like his whole, his whole thesis is on um, the health and wealth gospel in, in the African context, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I think one of the things that American practitioners have to be so careful of is that the things that we produce do through the blowing of winds go across the nations. I just this last week, I'm, I'm sitting in a library in Uganda, watching this guy 20 feet away from me, powering up his computer and watching Christian worship leaders. I'm not going to name them because, you know, 
famous Christian worship leaders is what he's watching and trying to learn how to do video editing from. And it was just this out-of-body experience seeing this highly problematic worship leader, I'll put it that way. That's why I'm not naming names because there's there's just documentaries out there if you want to dive into this. This highly problematic worship group that he's watching videos of trying to learn video editing and lighting and things from. And it was just like, what in the world? I'm on the other side of the world and here's this group in front of me. And the things that we produce go everywhere. And this is one of those. My experience specifically with this was um, the organization that we work for would have a meeting, a conference in Thailand every year. And so we spent, you know, January, February in Thailand on an annual basis. And we got to know a local church there because we were just looking for somewhere to be a part of on Sunday mornings. And so we would go to this church every uh, Sunday in the times that we were there year after year. And the whole time we were there it was the same pastor. It was a guy and, and his wife kind of co-led the ministry there. And when we first started going, it was a very small church, maybe 25, 30 people were there on a Sunday morning. But over the years, the church uh, shifted. And I noticed that uh, after maybe year three, maybe year four, the guy shifted into a, a prosperity gospel just out of nowhere. The messages and the, and the way that he was preaching and everything about it was, was gearing into that. It was like you had transported some of the great prosperity gospel preachers from the U.S. and, and put him there. I guess that's where he's getting his sermons from. And that's its own huge problem. But the, the part that disturbed me most was that made the church explode. Like he went from pretty small to not so small all of a sudden and they were having to find new buildings and new places to meet because this prosperity gospel as far as numbers go if that's your definition of success it worked and that was disturbing on so many layers and on so many levels today's sponsor is ozark christian college one of my favorite places in the world not only did i have a transformational experience as a student there myself but now i'm kind of in the business of trying to make that happen for others, serving on its faculty. And today I want to talk to you about the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry with a spiritual formation concentration. This degree is specifically for those who have a calling to learn how to lead people into healing and wholeness in Jesus. What this degree is all about is giving a deep dive into God's word and learning how to partner with the Holy Spirit to experience internal change that will lead to external change of the world. If this is something you're interested in, I highly encourage you to learn more and apply for free at occ.edu masters. How are things going? I mean, really going for your church post COVID. At Kindred Exchange, we hope your congregation is thriving, that your people are connected to each other, your community is connected to your people, and all of these people are reaching the world with overflowing love and gospel impact. We have a hunch, though, because we are also a part of churches, that perhaps things are a bit messier than this. Over the last decade, we experienced new critiques to evangelism and American Christianity in a plurality of ways. Then, a global pandemic cultivated a natural break for many to step away from the faith community they had always known. We want to be a part of what's next for you. With the Mission Audit Weekend at Kindred Exchange, you'll gather with leaders from area churches to ask the tough questions about what's past, what's next, and what's best for the gospel to be an encouragement, not only to your immediate neighbors, but to your neighbors across the globe. Through keynotes, facilitated workshops, and curated moments of networking and sharing, 
our team of mission experts will guide your church leadership through a two-day assessment of your outreach programs and strategies. It's no secret that people are hungry for good news. Let's make sure we're using relevant approaches to help that good news be received as hope and light in a heavy, fast-changing world. If your church would like to be a city host, let us know. Or you can sign up for our next event taking place in Nashville on August 25th and 26th at www.kindredexchange.org backslash audits. I just want to go to a, like another example that's not from the United States. Uh, and I'll go back to Peru again. So you've got this Christianity mixed with some indigenous animistic religion. And the way we still see that even today is when Christianity is mixed with the worship of Mother Earth or Pachamama mm. uh, is her name in Peru. I um, love that word, Pachamama. It's a great, that's a, that's it, a great it word. Is. There were restaurants called that. It was, it's a great word, Pachamama. Um, and so one example of this was on every mountaintop, um, again, they would worship the mountains, they would worship on the mountains. So you've got these what happened is this Christianization of these altars. And so now on every little mountaintop, every peak that you can hike to, there's a little altar with a cross on it, right? And that's that would look very Christian-y. And I think tourists would go up and say, oh, look, here's a cross on top of a mountain. What you don't notice is like underneath the cross, there's a bunch of like food hmm. on the ground. And it would just be like, what, why are people dumping their food here? Well, that's just, a, it's an offering to Mother Earth. And so they may, they may do the cross sign, throw a piece of ground, throw a piece of bread on the ground or a, a piece of chocolate. And so now they've worshiped, they worship Jesus and they've worshiped mother earth all in one moment. Um, and Check so those both boxes. top altars. Yeah. My favorite story is one of my doctoral professors was doing some pastor training in, um, in a Latin American country. We'll leave it there. And that, Anyway, we'll leave it there. And so on break, he noticed that some of the, the guys were, were they had they poured some some soft drink and they were drinking their their soft drinks. And he noticed that, and again, these are like guys leading churches, not just some ordinary lead, leaders of local churches. And he said, I watched as they they would dump a little bit of that out, just, just a little bit, dump a little bit out on the ground. He said, they didn't know, but that I knew what was going on. And he said, they were making a small offering to Pachamama mother earth so here are these these christian pastors dumping a little bit of their drink making a little offering to mother earth and then they would drink their soft drink and so he said my topic for that afternoon after the break was changed and we talked um about he said we talked about syncretism and we talked about what what matters and what's a little thing and what's not a little thing this in his mind was a was kind of a big thing uh for christian leaders to be making drink offerings to mother earth um in the in the middle of their christian tr pastor training it's fascinating yeah that stuff's tough. Little actions, little behaviors, little choices that we yeah. don't realize where they come from and don't realize what they're pointing towards. That's that's some subtle stuff that is kind of a big deal. Um, one last example. It was funny as we were you know, talking about this episode and looking at some different things in, in the world of syncretism. A friend of mine out of nowhere sends me this clip of a church. And I want to be careful here because it is a church that has a branch in my city. So I, I have friends who attend this church and um, so that's out there, but he sends me this clip from their men's conference. I don't know how recent this was, but uh, it's hard to describe what I saw. Let me, let me put it this way. It takes place in uh, a large arena that's usually used for sporting events. That's the, the thing that's happening around. 
There's music from Top Gun blaring over the speakers. It, the, the camera shows the stage, which is this massive concert-like stage with multiple platforms in which there's just video screens from floor to ceiling. And, and at this point, stars and stripes are the dominant imagery that we have there. And then on one of the platforms is this rock group. We're not talking like a worship band. It's, it's a straight up rock group with long hair, guitars, blaring, uh, that whole thing. And then there's pyrotechnics and, you know, columns of fire and the whole thing going and then underneath this platform stage comes out a, a tank just a, just a straight up tank and it rolls out from underneath the stage and then the tank begins to go through the middle of the arena uh the driver you know comes out from the opens the hatch and comes out there in which he's got this like long hair he's shirtless except for a leather vest and then he pulls out two automatic weapons i'm not knowledgeable to identify which ones they were but he starts shooting them up in the air i'm assuming with blanks of course uh and then the tank begins to roll over these cars that are in the middle of the arena and they go through and it's just it's that, like what in the world am i seeing here this is the most just violently american imagery i can possibly imagine uh, and so I did a little research on what in the world this conference is, and it's it's a men's conference put on by this church uh, with a line that says, we exist to empower and motivate men to live out God's view of manhood and be the best husbands, fathers, and leaders God has called them to be. Um, and I, you know, I can get behind that value, but <laughs> living it out with this behavior and with this choice is just it feels a little bit like we're on an alien planet and I'm not sure what is happening. And, and I know enough about their conference to know that fun is one of their values and they like to have some silly moments. And I think this is probably under that banner of let's have a fun, silly moment, but also what in the world is happening here? Yes. And really the big danger here that most of our listeners will probably have, have seen is like you start mixing patriotism oh, yeah. and faith and boy, things get, things get really messy in a hurry. Um, yeah. I mean, we're kind of in, in between Memorial Day and July 4th. And so those, both of those holidays are not far from the, when this podcast will be um, released. And like, you listen to language and church on those Sundays yeah. and you never know what someone might say. And again, I'm all for like, like thanking our veterans and having them stand, sure. you know, right. And, but then there's- we can We can honor well. Yeah, there's nothing wrong yeah. with honoring well. But like you said, it's real tricky to like, like where's that line? But yeah. you kind of know when it's been crossed. Yeah. You know when the line's been crossed and you can see it. And we've probably all been in situations where that line has been crossed. I won't be too too specific. Well, I think I think there are certain things we can, I mean, because this is not just, you know, Memorial Day service or July 4th service, but I don't, I've been in churches where there's a big question about uh, the American flag and its place within the church and its place outside of the church building and its place on a stage and all these things that become very complicated and people get very passionate about and it's hard to have a reasonable conversation about. But it's different when, like you said, mo people who've grown up mono monocultural, it's hard for them to see. For those of us who have yeah. lived out of the country, and this doesn't mean like we're any better than anybody, we just had a different set of experiences. And so that level of patriotism, when you've lived outside the country, you can see that everybody else is also very proud of the country in which they live. Sure. Come back to sometimes the obnoxious way that we express our patriotism 
even in churches at times can be uh, can be tricky. Um, yeah, and I guess maybe my feelings are too strong about this because like if, if they brought in an American flag and put it on the stage in the church where I serve right now, I'd probably resign on the oh, spot. Wow. Okay. That's like I I can't do it. I can't handle it. At the same time, um, I recognize that that's probably an overreaction, but that's like that's how strongly I would react. And I love America, so don't I don't want any hate mail about this. <laughs> I, just don't want an, I don't think an American flag belongs in our worship settings. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. I've I've known churches that have had major splits over that very yeah. issue. That at some point in their history, they decided, you know what, we're taking the flag off the stage. That this is inappropriate and strong reactions that came out yeah. of that. But um, you know, the monoculture thing. One of the metaphors that I use on that is you and I have both experienced this. We worked with college students a long time, and you know how college students go through that period, usually their freshman sophomore year where they're finally getting out of their home culture for the first time. They're getting away from their family. And they realize things in their family that were super weird that they never saw before because they were never out of that culture. They, As long as you're living at home, you can't see your own family's weirdness <laughs> yeah. because that weirdness is all you know. And so there's what's good weird, what's bad weird, who knows? Because it's all you can see. And then you get out and then you get a roommate and you begin to talk about your families growing up and things you went through. And then you talk about what you think is a normal thing your family did. And then your friends are like, they did what? Like what in the world? And then you begin to realize, oh, my family has some issues. It has some things. It has some weirdness that I could not see before. And that's why I tell my students all the time. I say, I don't care what your future is. I don't care what you're going to do. You need to go overseas for an extended period of time. And I'm, for that, I, tell, I challenge them to a minimum of two years to go overseas for a minimum of two years. I don't care what you do. I don't care what it's about. This is not like a missionary pep rally I'm giving here, hmm. but it's a, you just need to see a bigger world. You can't work with and serve your own culture. If you don't have another culture to compare it to, if you can't see it with those fresh eyes, again, to use another college metaphor, it's like when you go home for Thanksgiving break and you come back, that's when you find out what your dorm room really smells like. Because when you're living in that dorm room day in and day out, you're blind. It's olfactory amnesia. There's a term for it. You can't smell things because you're used to smelling it. You need to get away and you need to get a break and you need to go away from that thing. And then when you come back, you'll find out what it smells like. And I'm stuck on the phrase olfactory amnesia. I'm just really thankful that we learned <laughs> that on this episode of our podcast. Yeah. That's the term for it, olfactory I'm amnesia. Go with that one today. Well, the theory, real quick, the theory behind it is olfactory amnesia is the part of your brain that senses smell as a protective measure. So, if you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation, that'll usually smell dangerous, and so your brain will magnify it. And what happens over time is if you keep smelling that thing over and over again, and you're not dead, it hasn't killed you then your brain shuts it off. Your brain, like you can't smell that smell anymore because clearly it's not a danger, even though your brain originally thought it was. And so it shuts it down. And so the only way to smell that smell again is to go away from it for a period of time, let your brain kind of refresh itself and then go back to it. It's the same reason why some, I don't know if you've experienced this, but individuals who wear way too much cologne and perfume, it's because their brain has got used to that smell. It shut the smell down. And now when they are, you know, getting themselves ready for the morning they're not smelling it and that's why they're overdoing it so bad uh but it's the same reason why dorm rooms stink and people don't know yeah. until they come back well, from break is, this is why i am deeply grateful for shout out to all of the summer camp counselors this summer <laughs> who are spending their summer in a cabin with like my son 10 year old boys oh yeah i imagine by the end of the summer they'll forget um 
just how nasty it must smell in that cabin with a bunch of 10 year old boys who've played outside all week and yeah. probably pretended like they took a shower and didn't actually take a shower. They're getting to that age where they don't realize their body is changing, <laughs> even though the rest of us clearly do. <laughs> but that's uh, a fun stage. I really, I really hate how, you know, so many deodorant sprays have marketed themselves as 24 hour protection, 38, 36 hour protection. I heard one that was 72 hour protection. And it's like, let's not do that. Let's not tell these young boys that they can go 72 hours and smell good because it's just simply not true. No. Anyway, we are off track. Let's let's talk about, um, so let's get into some general ideas and principles of how do we know syncretism has occurred? If this is a difficult thing to realize, especially the dangers of the subtle forms of it, where do we know that it's happening? What are some things that we can look at? Yeah, so I think the biggest one is just in the way that we present the gospel, mm. right? And, and there's kind of two extremes on that. So if we're talking about the gospel, like the the reason we need the gospel is because we've sinned, right? Mm -hmm. So there's sin and therefore there's salvation offered by God and there's repentance on our part. So it's like, it's great news, but the bad news is like we're sinners who uh, deserve God's wrath. Um, and so the opposite of that, I think syncretism then would be this whole message of self-esteem of you're wonderful, mm -hmm. you're amazing and perfect, all of that stuff. Um, and there's a time and place to talk about identity and that God created us and we're created, uh, created in his image. But if that's the only diet, spiritual diet that we have, that's going to mess us up. But I think there's an opposite side of that, right? Yeah, no, I like how you said that, the self-esteem gospel. I think that's a good term for it with this idea that, yeah, you're wonderful. You're amazing. Aren't you so glad that God made you the way you are? We're trying to affirm people. That's a real big thing in our modern cultural times. But the gospel bleeds into that and it's missing the concept of sin. If you don't have sin, you don't have the gospel. On the other side, we have, um, you know, more classic Turner Burn gospel, which is right. you are a sinner condemned to hell. The end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then well, what happens with that is if that's a steady diet in the church, then people who ought to be confident in their salvation, they go home every Sunday and lay their heads on their pillow that night and they question whether they're going to heaven or not. Right. Yeah. They're just assuming I could never be good enough for this because that's all they hear on a re regular basis is turn, turn or burn, turn or burn. And that has impacts on us, yeah. like long-term impacts on us, both of these extremes of gospel presentations. Boy, we could go, we could like go on and on about each one of yeah. these things. Sorry. I think a lot of these, one of the big buckets that we have to think of as syncretism is a doctrinal level. You know, the gospel is a big part of that. The gospel is the core of our doctrine. And if we don't understand those three key pieces, sin, repentance, and salvation, the core of the gospel. If any of those get lost or compromised, we're here. What are some other doctrinal issues? Yeah, I mean, so we believe that we are saved by grace through faith. Um, so I think in a in a real hurry, we can somehow think we've earned our salvation. Mm. Um, we do checklist Christianity as long as you go to church, are a decently good person, give a little bit, check, check, check. Um, I've done, and it's the American that's a deeply American gospel. Yeah. Right. I mean, what's it take for really, and especially in the South where there's more kind of a Christian culture, what's somebody have to do to go to heaven? Die. That's all you have to do to go to heaven <laughs> because at the funeral, somebody's going to get up and say, well, they were a good person and they accepted yeah. Jesus when they were five in Sunday school and see, you're good. Um, and so it's just all about like how good we can be. And 
problem with that is then everybody's done a little bit of good. So you can check the box a couple times. You're good. But then the extreme of that is, boy, it's just this checklist. It's this Christianity following Jesus becomes this oppressive burden Mm. because we can't do enough to earn it. But somehow we think we have to. Yeah. And I think we've talked about Acts 15 already, but that we see the core of that there where these Pharisees are coming in and saying, unless you're circumcised, you're not saved which is an earned salvation. It's a, through this behavior, you have earned salvation. And if you don't reach these behaviors, then you're not saved. I mean, we joked earlier about, you know, if I drink more coffee, I'm going to find Jesus. But that's funny because it's rooted in how a lot of Christians think that if you're not, if you're, if you are or are not following this behavior, then your salvation is dependent on it. And that is an earned salvation. That's not grace. And the syncretism in that is, is especially here in the South, there's a lot of hardworking people, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get her done, in the words of um, Mater. Well, it's, I guess, whoever. Isn't that Jeff Foxworthy? No, it's that other guy who traveled with Jeff Oh, Foxworthy. yeah. Larry the Cable Guy. Larry the Cable Guy. Yes. So you can, you never know what you're going to get on this podcast. But it's that whole <laughs> mindset of, you can do this, get her done. It's the American way. It's especially kind of the Southern American, the hardworking rural folks get her done and while that's a there's there are good things and bad things about that value a lot of good things like when that bleeds over into our faith and our relationship with jesus it becomes a very works-based so you can see where culture bleeds into our our christian faith in harmful ways and then on the other side it's also used as a way to condemn that there are certain rules that you have to follow and behaviors. You have, if you ever break these, if you ever mess these up, then you're not a Christian anymore and you're going to hell. It's a little bit like, you know, the Mandalorian TV show where if you remove your helmet, then you're no longer a Mandalorian. You, you've, you've, you've done this behavior that has disqualified you from the faith. And there are sins that cannot be redeemed and cannot be forgiven. And we can use that to condemn and to feel superior and, you know, the rush of serotonin of thinking you're better than somebody is a powerful, powerful thing. And that's going to bleed into our faith here. I see some of this on the on the opposite side, though. This has become, I think, a more recent doctrinal syncretism. Uh, certain preachers, book writers, I've even seen this in my own circles a little bit, which is on the other side of this idea that God loves you so much. And God is so loving and kind and gracious that when it comes to your sin, God just kind of brushes it aside. You know, love wins. And so God loves you so much that he's just like, like a kindly grandpa just patting you on the head and saying, you know what, we're just gonna, we're just gonna brush that aside. And it's missing this core doctrine of the reason you can be forgiven is because of the cross. The reason you can be forgiven is because of the substitution who took your place and your punishment, that this is not, that there is justice involved in this stuff and that sin has to be dealt with at some level. And it has to be dealt with in what we, what we experience in the Bible, a violent bloody way, because sin is that serious and cannot just be looked past. But this twisted idea of what love means, a love that I think we, we got from Disney more than anything else. Absolutely that love is just you know look overlooking things and looking past bad stuff and just saying everything's okay yeah so our time is going by quickly you got kind of a bullet point list of a couple other ways this happens yeah um i think we, we i would love to talk a whole lot more about this but running out of time this idea of eternalism 
that's a phrase that I like to think I invented. Maybe I didn't. I probably stole it from somewhere. But eternalism is this idea that salvation is about eternity and that's it. That the purpose of the cross and the purpose of Jesus and his ministry was to get you out of hell and into heaven. And that's all that matters. And the purpose then of the Christian life is only to make it to heaven. Right. Just wait. Try not to screw anything up. You know, do whatever you want to do. You do you. But the point of, of your salvation is, is to go to heaven. And the, the, the real danger and heresy of that is that it makes Jesus a means to an end. Yeah. That the whole purpose is heaven. That's the real point. That's what we're really getting at. And that is ultimately our idol. And yeah. Jesus is just a way to a greater thing, which that's yeah. where, you know, you screwed up when you make Jesus a means to an end, you yeah. are way off track. We love Jesus only for what he what we get out of him, not for who he is. So we treat him like a, our mechanic or a good surgeon, yeah. right? We're good with, you've done good things for me. Therefore, I love you. Um, I'll yeah. call you when I need you again. Uh, boy, that's, yeah, that's pretty serious stuff. So those are all loss of doctrines. That's when we know syncretism and having core doctrines to the Christian faith are getting messed up. But I would say there's also a loss of practice, that there's also behaviors that are core to Christianity. It's not simply our ideas and doctrines that we build. So among those would be like the gathering. You know, we call that church. Other people have problems with that language, but Christians getting together is something that we see, you know, a very clear example of what they're doing in the New, in the New Testament. And there are people who are kind of like, you know, we don't really have to do that. Yeah, it's all about personal relationship. I don't yeah. need, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. Yeah, that's, that's syncretism. That's some yeah. rugged American individualism yep. seeping into the way we do our faith. Um, I think, the loss of repentance, right? This is used. We make Christianity as user friendly as possible. And so we tolerate sin. Um, in some cases we even endorse sin. Yeah. Um, and that gets, obviously we don't want to, we could talk about a, a long list of things, but I think that bleeds into how rarely church discipline occurs. Oh yeah. Um, it's I can't so, tell you the last so... time that I saw a real church discipline. Yeah. Um, like we know it's there. We know it's in scripture. Um, but boy, uh, I, and that's that's very American way of doing things. That's what happens when churches become more of a social club than they are about being a family in which sin must be dealt with. Yeah, I mean, I've had a number of conversations with my own students over the last couple of years, I've noticed, especially where, where I brought up in class, like the responsibility of brothers and sisters in Christ to confront one another. <laughs> and students push back on that saying, isn't yeah. that, you know, do not judge. Is it, didn't Jesus talk directly about that? No, Jesus said, don't be the judge, but we still got to be the jury. Like we're not telling you what happens because of your wrong things. That's God's job to ultimately make that decision. But we can tell you that wrong things are occurring and you go yeah. through the scriptures where Paul and Jesus both lay out what Christian confrontation is. And the fact that we do have a responsibility to help one another to avoid our sin and behavior that have gone off track. And that's uh, hard to do today because that's offensive and that's judgy. And again, culture winning the day. Let's talk about um, some subtle forms of syncretism. These have been dangerous things. We'll kind of wrap up with this today. Uh, this is where things might get spicy because we're talking about yes. blind spots. And not everybody's going to agree with us and we may lose some listeners, but apparently we have 500. So I'm not worried. Hey, yeah. <laughs> More than just their moms. Yes. Well, or maybe just maybe. very active moms. That's probably what it is. That was our target audience, active moms for this podcast. Uh, but uh, one of them that I came across recently, I'm going to call these smiling singers. 
And uh, I heard a guy giving a sermon and he talked about this idea that the happy Christian motif, which I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You show up on a Sunday morning and everybody on stage is smiling 100% of the time. You know what I'm talking about? Is this a real yeah. thing where we're, we're giving this idea that to follow Jesus means you are happy and that relationship and connection to God results in happiness. And I'm smiling and you're smiling and everything's upbeat and everyone's glad to be here. And our, and our songs are about victory and how Jesus has conquered all of these things. And our sermons are about how great everything is. And if you have more faith, you'll be more happy. And he, he talked about how this comes from what we've talked about before, the prosperity gospel, that this is a subtle form of the prosperity gospel in that Jesus means you will smile. That's what real Christians do. And there's no place for anything else. Never at one point in any time in that service will you see mention of grief, of mourning, of lament, of the struggles that we face in wrestling through our relationship with Christ, that there's absolutely zero place for those, which is a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, the Psalms themselves, 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, where people are trying to work through their difficulties with God. And a lot of the posit overly positive Christian experience that we give is uh, a syncretism. Yeah. And I wonder in the average, on the average Sunday morning, as you think about the audience, how many people are actually going through something tough in that moment and they need to lament yeah. in, in Christian ways. And it turns out like scripture can help like the Psalms themselves yeah. can help us to actually do this, but we just don't give any space for it because of um, what you've just described. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, Maybe another one would be maybe a more serious one, but our emphasis on power mm. and that then mixes with political power. Yeah. Um, how have you seen that play out? Well, I mean, the political one is, is pretty obvious. It's this idea that um, if we can get our team in power, because oftentimes politics looks like team sports. If we can get our team in power, then this will be the nation it's supposed to be. It's, yeah. it's this idea that power is the way to make Jesus happen. And so if we can get political power, especially because that's the power we're most familiar with, then we'll turn things around to whatever they used to be, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And it's funny, though, when we had that power, perhaps a little bit more political power in the 70s and 80s, um, we weren't very kind no. sometimes. And then as we've lost some of that political power, and now we're experiencing perhaps some unkindness mm -hmm. from people in power. Like we're getting all like, oh, I can't believe we're being treated this way. Yeah. Well, what did we do? Like right. when we were in power, we were not very kind. And so then we lose our minds when people aren't kind to us. Uh, turns out like just trying to be like Jesus, um, like just living out the Sermon on the Mount yeah. sure would make a big difference in our lives. That's the most fascinating part to me is power is a topic that Jesus talked a lot about. Yeah. This was one of his major themes was the relationship to power. And so there is just a wealth of teaching on this. If you will actually bother to read the gospels about how his followers handle power. Jesus talked directly to his disciples about the way in which their holding of power will be different than how the world does it. Uh, and these are real things that we, we just overlook. Another way that I see this, this power dynamic playing a part is uh, in the church and uh, such an emphasis on leadership. Uh, I was at a conference a few years ago where, for church leaders 
And the big buzzword of that conference was your leadership pipeline, you know, trying to get churches to realize, you know, what is your strategy at a program level to create more leaders? And so, you know, all of your programming and all of your discipleship efforts are about how are you creating more leaders? And it just, it bothered me to a deep level. It's like, I thought we were making disciples. And some of those disciples will be leaders because leadership is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But why are we creating all of our discipleship systems with a goal of one spiritual gift being realized? Like what's going on here? What, what is happening here? And the only conclusion that I can come to is this, this idea that if um, leadership, which is, which is a gift of power, really, if we want to look at it that way, if we can get that spiritual gift maximized, then we'll make the church we need to make. Then our church will really be humming along and being the church it needs to be. If we can get power under control, uh, yeah. then then we'll then we'll do what we need to do. Maybe the one that most everyone has experienced, and though it's subtle, like it's easy to see, is our emphasis on efficiency. Like oh, that's yeah. an American value. Sure. And then I suppose the simple question is, how do we see efficiency bleed into the life of a church? And I think we think about our church, our worship services and how time oriented they are. And if they go just a little bit over time, how quickly people are to kind of lose their minds over that. And there's just little room for spiritual connections, um, little room to be a family. You don't put family on a clock, right? You know, you know, don't get together for Christmas dinner. It's like this Christmas dinner is ending at 635, whether <laughs> we're ready or not. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, like a worship service, a lot, I don't know how yours is, but I've been a part of a number of them that they're timed down to the very minute of every single thing that occurs in that worship service. And we have to keep it on this schedule. And we've got clocks in multiple places that turn red when you've gone over your time. Mm. Uh, it's not, uh, we're, we're not, very, we're not as programmatic like that. And so it's not all timed and everybody kind of does their thing, but you see it when the overall package has gone 15 minutes over Mm. and then it's, people are like, good grief. What's going on here? We got things to do. Yeah. Um, That's when you can can tell. I've seen efficiency also in our discipleship strategies where whatever we're going to do to fix you, if it doesn't work within six months, then it failed. That whatever form of whether it's joining a community, whether it's getting involved in spiritual formation rhythms, whatever it is, whatever strategy, you know, a new Bible study, if it doesn't work immediately, then it's not working at all. Mm-hmm. That I think that's part of American culture in a larger sense in which we, if problems aren't fixed immediately, then they're not fixed at all. If we don't, you know, if we don't fix racism in the next nine months, then we failed. <laughs> yeah. If if your party isn't fixing America and within two years, because that's our election cycle, within two years, then we need to get the other people in charge. It's this this obsession with short-term solutions to long-term problems. And our discipleship strategies and our evangelism efforts fit into that as well. Absolutely. And there's a lot more. Like we could do this all day, but we're far, we're at an hour now. We so. are. We're, we're reaching our thing. Uh, this is syncretism. It's, it's one of the great dangers of contextualization. It's one of the things that we have to avoid. We've got to have our ears up. We've got to guard against it. But I would conclude this with a piece of encouragement. Don't be afraid. Like, don't live in fear. Don't let this danger become this boogeyman that prevents you from contextualizing well. This is going to happen in a lot of different ways. 
anytime faith encounters culture, there will be an intermixing. It's inevitable. It's just part of a broken and fallen world. Uh, be aware of it. Look out for it. But don't let it be the reason not to do this. Don't let it be a fear that paralyzes you from doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. Keep going. Keep doing it. When it happens, correct it. Fix it. Um, be accountable to others as other people pointed out yeah. on you. Um, be the first to admit where you've maybe gone too far and then be gracious with others as they struggle with this too. Um, we can work together and do this well. Yeah. Programming notes, our next episode, we're having an interview. Ooh. Yeah. Dr. Scott Moreau, yes. de Dean of the Graduate School at Wheaton College, uh, a major foundational voice in the topic of contextualization within the world of missiology. He's coming on our podcast. Look at us. Yeah. Look at us. Yeah, I mean, really, he ought to be doing the podcast and everybody yeah, just listen to him. But nonetheless, we're going to interview him. It's going to be great. Yeah, so look forward to uh, hearing from that next week. And we'll see you then. Bye.